Hello and welcome to this Blackwell Online podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Claire Harmon, who in her new book, Jane's Fame, explores the seemingly unstoppable rise of popularity of Jane Austen. From the book, which shows a wit and acuity that have made her subject proud, it's clear that it's not only the novels which continue to grow in popularity, but also her idea of the author who created them. Think of the film Becoming Jane. Think of our cosy familiarity in referring to her by her first name, Our Jane. Think even of the recent surprise bestseller, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, which somehow both challenged and confirmed Austen's place as a cultural icon with few parallels. When I met Claire Harmon, I began by suggesting that the fact that comparatively little is known about Austen's life has meant that it can be taken as a blank canvas on which to portray her as we would like her to be. Yes, yes, and there have been nasty jolts to that tendency. You know, at every point when something has been published that indicates that Austen was not a completely straightforward and simple and sweet-natured woman, um, there have been kind of little frissons and people have worried about it, but then that all gets forgotten. It's amazing how there can't be any revisionism done on any well-loved author that sticks. I mean, it'll only stick in certain areas, and that, but for the most part, the great mass of adorers will go on regardless. I mean, you can have the most authoritative uh, source saying that, you know, perhaps Austin wasn't completely full of the milk of human kindness. And um, you could have it proven to you beyond doubt, and yet people would still say, ah, she's just divine Jane, you know. It seemed to me that very early on in writing about her, this notion that her her own writing was pure, was simple, was straightforward, was sort of unreflective, was just something which kind of came from her without any kind of mediation, any kind of sort of intellectual mm-hmm. mediation, was was a very sort of prominent one. Yes, it's amazing how many of those um, similes of, of it being absolutely natural, you know, like the singing, singing of a bird or you know the warbling of a <laughs> of a bird. Yes, and that's obviously connected with uh, the concept of, of a, a, an untutored woman only producing something that is basically quite straightforward, small scale, domestic, unambitious in terms of, of its sort of political messages or its its relevance to the wider world. Austen's popularity with men is obviously counted against that being true, and people know it's not true. I mean, she wouldn't be a very popular author if she wasn't also a, a really good one. But yes, it's, it's that apparent simplicity of the books. I mean, the language is very simple. They take place in, you know, limited regions. I mean, they, they don't. she doesn't travel in the books. She doesn't attempt to bring in any sort of um, topical references that are going to overset the boat. But no, that's completely a fallacy to think that that means she's, she's actually being a, a, a simple or simple-minded person. She's an incredibly intellectual writer. Do you think the fact that we have comparatively few of her manuscripts to look at, so we, so we know less about her working methods, mm-hmm. has sort of counted against seeing what a complex process writing the books was? Yes, I think very much so, because people didn't really study the manuscripts very much until the last oh, the last 25 or 30 years. There's been an enormous amount of interest in them. And there obviously there was um, some before, but it, it wasn't it wasn't broadcast very much. And as you say, there are very few manuscripts. And where you can see how much she revised the last chapter of Persuasion, you know, we have the two cancelled chapters there, she changed it entirely. I mean, the ending is entirely different. The weight of the story 
changes completely in that new version. And who knows how many other versions there were. It's just it's an accident that what we've got has, has survived. It does indicate that she was a, a thorough and frequent reviser. Yes, and of course it makes people think that because we don't see that effort going on, that it, it didn't exist. Now, tell me about the role of her elder sister, Cassandra, as Keeper of the Flame in, in helping to create this um, afterlife for Jane Austen. Well, people often think that Cassandra must have had malicious or self-preserving motivations after Jane's death and destroyed manuscripts and letters. I really don't believe that that's the case. I think that Jane and Cassandra had such a close and exclusive relationship that Cassandra, although at her own death and just before, you know, when she was getting to be an old lady, she was keen not to leave too much stuff around uh, of her sisters or of her own. Until that point, you know, after Jane's death in 1817, Cassandra actually was making a collection of, of memorabilia for herself. I mean, she wasn't doing it for posterity. She was doing it purely for her own benefit, being profoundly bereaved and, and very lonely, I should think. And there's every indication that what Cassandra was doing was uh, alerting the family to try and gather in references to that, the late aunt and to really have a sort of album of her own. And so I mean, the 161 letters that have survived by Jane Austen, most of them are to her sister Cassandra. There's, you know, I, I don't know the exact number, but a dozen or so to other people. Cassandra clearly kept more letters by Jane than anybody else kept. She didn't keep her letters to Jane. I presume that, that she did destroy all of those. So if she had huge bonfires of letters, they were more likely to be her own letters. And really that act of preservation was an unusual one. And to keep the ones that she kept, I mean, scholars have looked at them very carefully, obviously, in terms of the content. And they do mostly refer in some way, even obliquely, to the writing. So Cassandra must have been honing her choice of those letters eventually. But it's extremely likely she kept all the ones she had, which would have been thousands from Jane, for a very long time and kept other things, kept these, you know, as I say, reviews of, or references to Jane's work, um, which weren't very frequent in the 1820s and 30s, but kept them as as a personal thing. So when she did keep the flame, but it was only for her own benefit, really that that generation of Austin siblings would not have imagined there was any, uh, that it, they would have thought it was very improper to present their sister to the world in any way other than they had done in 1817 with the little biographical note that Henry Austin wrote, which explained that the anonymous author of the four published books had been Miss Jane Austen of Steventon. She'd been a rector's daughter, and she'd lived a pious and, and um, happy life and was much missed by her family. I mean, that was all that anybody needed to know. And it was only because the next generation were mid-Victorians, were of a different age, different sensibility, that they even began to think of, of publishing a memoir that included family reminiscences. And even then, one of the nieces was couldn't believe that any letters would have been kept at all by her aunt, Cassandra. She, you know, she said, well, of course, the recipient would have destroyed them. So how critical was a publication in 1870 of Austen Lee's Life of Jane Austen? That, it, it seemed from the book that, was a, that really was a, a turning point. Well, it, it really was a turning point, but it's quite disheartening to see how biographical uh, information can attract 
a, a large audience to an author when the texts of that author have failed to do so. I mean, Austen did have many ardent admirers in the mid-Victorian period, including some very powerful, influential people. But even though their letters and diaries were beginning to be published by 1870, it hadn't made a huge impact, you know, in a sort of mass market way. But that memoir, which had many you know, details of Jane Austen's home life, but they were all tame. I mean, it wasn't a, a <laughs> shocking <laughs> story by any means. That really did the trick. I mean, much to the surprise of the nephew who wrote the book and his sisters who'd collaborated with him, because they really didn't think that it would start a, a big Jane cult. But they not only did they want um, a second impression of the memoir within months of the first first edition, but also people started clamouring to know about the juvenilia that had been mentioned in it. So, you know, it was the first point at which anything other than the six published books became of interest to the public. And, it, you know, the, the family did still have bits and pieces, which they started to publish then. But they again, they didn't think of publishing the letters at that point because that was deemed to be inappropriate. And it was only in the 1880s that the letters began to be published. So the more the public found out about this actually very quiet life, the more they they fell in love with her. And, you know, it's astonishing how much Jane Codswallop was, was produced in those decades, not just the kind of gushing pieces of writing that you might associate with internet bloggers <laughs> now, but also the um, multiple editions. I mean, she, she had, you know, collected works with illustrations in them. I do think the break into illustration is a very important one in terms of how the text then becomes not quite adequate on its own. While we're on the subject of illustrations, I was fascinated by what you wrote about images of Jane herself and how, from very flimsy starting materials, Mm -hmm. images of her had been produced, which again reinterpret her, create a a, a Jane of the imagination. I suppose the first thing I want to ask you about the illustrations is, why do you think there are so few contemporary illustrations when she lived in a culture where mm-hmm. the making of the making of portraits, that the accomplishment with the, the, the pen and the pencil were, were so much part of everyday life? I think it's absolutely bizarre because, as you say, every young lady was taught to be accomplished and they all did drawing lessons. And all the Austins were, were pretty good draftsmen and women. Um, Cassandra was meant to be the arty one, but I'm sure Jane did as many, you know, sketches as most young women. And uh, Henry was a, a drawing master at one point, And James Austin, Jane's eldest brother, was, um, you know, an amateur artist at university. So it is extraordinary that so few of their works survive. And Cassandra's works puzzle me profoundly because there's a, a landscape painting by her at Chawton Cottage. There's a, a, a very pretty little watercolour painting, supposedly of her niece Fanny, but it's not signed, but people think it's by Cassandra. And Fanny herself is in that picture doing a painting of another female figure. I'd like to think it was her Aunt Jane in the off camera, as it were. But, you know, this was such a common occupation for a young woman that it's bizarre that all we've got of Jane Austen by Cassandra are two pictures. One is, is called The Horrid Scratch by one of the nieces of her that's in the National Portrait Gallery and from which all the familiar Austen seated portraits with a mob cap thing on are based. And the other one is a very unhelpful but telling picture of Austen seen, well, not seen at all. I mean, it's from the back view, so you see the back of, of, a, of a woman uh, with a strangely... Uh, 
uh, articulated leg and a uh, bonnet, um, and that is supposedly Jane Austen in 1804. But of course, we don't see the face at all. So whether Cassandra destroyed a lot of her own pictures of Jane because she thought they weren't good enough, but then the one that's left is so inadequate that that, that makes it rather unlikely. But the one that's left, apart from being tiny and faint, does have, I think, a terribly characteristic body language. I mean, the face is a bit strange, <laughs> I think we have to say. <laughs> She's not looking at her best. But the, the tetchy arm folding, I mean, it's just, it, and the position of the shoulders, it's so fed up. And you do get a sense of Austin listening to some total bore and not saying anything, and Cassandra just getting the pencil and very quickly doing a sketch of a characteristically surly attitude of her sisters. And it's very interesting that that is the only one we have to go on and that that's the one that's had to be manipulated by imagination and pen into something that's more acceptable and, and, and pretty and sometimes ridiculous. I mean, some of those those variations on a theme are, are so doe-eyed so bovine, so disgusting that, you know, you just wonder how anybody could produce a picture of Jane Austen uh, that was that had so little connection with the voice in the text. No, we, we spoke about the 1870s following the, the Austen Lee memoir as a sort of first great explosion of public interest. And I guess the second great wave came 120 years later in the <laughs> 1990s. And that was, that was led not by a, a memoir, but by television and film. Yes, completely. That was astonishing. I think the people who made the Pride and Prejudice series for BBC in, in 1995 couldn't have imagined how much of an effect that would have had. Um, I mean, not just in terms of commercially, I mean, with the sales of the video and the, and the success of the film globally, but, but the way that it it sort of released some pent-up desire to find a, a globally adorable genius uh, who who could be you know used either purely for entertainment purposes but with a moral edge to it i mean austin's form of entertainment is not bland or vacant it's always got you know even at its most simple some sort of profoundly interesting moral moral uh, foundations but of course you can allow people to just wallow in production values and the beauty of the of the films that they were making um and to also allow all the people who treasured Austin's texts to have a day off, you know. So <laughs> it allows you to be both high-minded and highbrow, and also to slouch around on a, on a sofa with a bag of, of crisps or a box of chocolates. I mean, it, it just it draws together so many pleasure and leisure threads that, and also with with the advent of videotape. I mean, that there is always a technological undercurrent isn't there i mean with with the the memoir you could say it was to do with publication you know printing being cheaper uh, publication history being different with the illustrated editions again i mean printing pictures became easier and cheaper and with um with uh, you know cine film and cinema film the first 1940s films be, you know dealt with with austin texts as well i um, mean the the uh, the Pride and Prejudice of 1940. But certainly with when television was able to be sold as video and Austin's adorable six-part adaptation came along, I mean, it was just asking asking to be everybody's Christmas present. And, you know, once once you've done that, once you've 
you've really broken the bounds of ordinary reading and ordinary reading habits and gone outside the book and outside the text to that extent, you know, through a film that people will then see and think they've read the book, even if they haven't read the book. They've heard about the book. They know it's about Regency-ish things. It's a love story. They know it's it's venerated by people and that it's worth clocking. It's worth kind of a, a, a acquiring culturally. Then so having seen the film will do, or even having heard about the film will do. Austen then becomes, to some extent, one of your possessions. And this has happened now for so many millions of people that, of course, then you can start referring to that recognisability in other ways. So, I mean, then a woman in a bonnet selling a you know cup of cocoa would connect with the Austin phenomenon. So it becomes massively valuable and really almost impossible to put an end to in this, as, I, as I've written about, in a sort of viral way. I mean, it, it, it does have an exponential effect. I mean, it just goes goes on and on. Claire Harmon. Jane's Fame, How Jane Austen Conquered the World, is out now in paperback. You can find full details about this book, as well as several million more, by going to blackwell.co.uk. That's all for this Blackwell Online podcast, so thank you for listening, and until next time, goodbye.